0: The EMS Garage is a production of emsradio.com. You can find us on Facebook, just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter, at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Garage. <laughs> you know, Okay, the on. Ran the, with the vehicle. Checking out right now. Okay, I got the phone. I want to know if uh, you
1: can handle that call as well. Just confirming you are checking the patient. Sailor next 22 is on
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the EMS Garage. I'm your host, Chris Montero. This week, we're coming to you without the Ustream because it's been killing our podcast. Sorry about that the past couple of weeks. Um, Apparently, I just can't push the bandwidth. So, uh, um, Hopefully, that will get fixed within some meaningful lifetime of mine, I hope. Uh, We may have to have actually a second... uh, second type of internet into our house to make that happen. But anyway, I'm your host, Chris Montera. I'm the geeky medic on all of the social media websites. And tonight, we're going to talk about intubation. One of our favorite subjects, I think, on the garage next to education and what we should call paramedics is the time-honored thing of airway control and really what we do with it. Generally, we get, uh, I can goad Will done into this conversation, but I know he's on vacation this week. So this week I've goaded several other people into it. And my premise for the whole night is to say that I think pre intubation is dead. And we'll go from there, I'm sure, very soon. Uh, but first, let me, let me not waste any time to tell you that we're going to be at EMS Expo this year. Uh, I was going to say June. It's going to be September... 28th through October 2nd. We'll be on the show floor producing podcasts every day. And that's brought to you by soul. And there are podcast booth, um, or podcast studio sponsor, 40 by 40 booth that if you, that's like 1600 square feet. That's huge for a show floor like that. So we'll have seating. Uh, I have a feeling we'll have some internet there if you want to blog. Uh, Don't tell anybody. And then we'll have some other things that we can allow you guys to come in and hang out and and just get to – and, hey, if you really want to be on the show, we'll put you on the show too. So that will be at the end of September in Dallas, Texas, EMS Expo. Come out, see us, Jamie Davis, myself, Ted Setla, Justin Shore, Kelly Grayson, um, I think Bill Toon maybe maybe not be there. Um, I th- I'm hoping James will be there if his baby and his wife cooperate. And uh I know Brad'll be there. So I'm very excited about it, and I also know that Greg Fries and several of our other podcast people will be there. Um if you wanna see the revenge of the Dart contest and I I beat um mister Kyle David Bates at DART's when we were in DC. About about three or four months ago, so he's he's coming back for revenge, and I'm hoping to maintain my title and we'll see if I can continue to do that. But if you want to see us doing darts i I think that'll be a Wednesday night event, and we will tweet it so follow us on Twitter. And you can uh, follow the hashtag EMS Expo or just follow me, EMI, or not EMS Garage. Well, you can follow that too. Please do. But you can follow GeekyMatic and we'll give you all of the skinny while we're out there. So joining me first, Dr. Bill Toon. How are you, sir?
1: Good. How are you tonight? Looking I'm, forward to our little discussion.
0: I'm good. I'm really good. Uh, so yeah, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it. Are you going to Are you going to Expo or no? I, I'm sure I ask you every time, but I don't
1: remember. Yeah, yeah. Ask me every time, and I I tell everyone the same thing. Maybe. Well, it's but, not that and I far. Only, could drive I, down. Oh no, I could drive down, but there's um. Our, uh, as you know, Expo's done with uh, in cooperation or collaboration with NAMT, and the new president that will be uh, uh, appointed or whatever for NAMT is uh, the current vice president, and she's an employee of ours. She's a captain with ours, so I know a number of our big brass are going down above my uh, my pay grade are going down to help support her as she gets... uh, gets uh, her official title of president for the next couple of years. So.
0: Wow. And who's she taking that over from?
1: Oh, of course you're going to ask me a difficult question I that picture, I don't know the I can't yes, picture his I, face, but I can't Yes, but I can't picture his name right now. Sure but face. her name is Connie Meyer. So oh, she'll cool. she'll be taking over and uh we're very excited for that. And again, as we said, we're you know, we're uh, a county service, so uh, we uh, have to be very careful with how we use the taxpayers' money. So,
0: Understandable. Absolutely. I I totally get that, and we're only sending one to Expo as well. Besides me, I'm going because uh, Zoll's paying for me. Thank goodness. And Thank I, you, Zoll.
1: Well done with Zoll, and I am I think that's awesome that they're supporting uh, the podcast so well down there. I think that's really great.
0: Well, my hope is that other companies will come on and want to support us, but I think that Zoll understands the benefit of the social media and is slowly starting to come on board with it i i hear rumors though that we may have i keep saying this all the time but i know there's a there's a rumor coming about that we'll have a large um sponsor for not only our show but for several shows across our network coming up very soon so um i'm just waiting to see once it's all about signing on the dotted line and getting through corporate America that I'm really not very good at about it. So anyway, we'll try. Um, so thanks for, thanks for coming on. I hope you can drive down. Maybe you can at least come down for a day or something and hang out with us. It'd be pretty
1: cool. Yeah, that's what I am going to try to do. So
0: right on. Well, I fly out the second, so please try and do it before that day. Okay. Cause I'll be crazy that day. Um, so thanks for joining us. Mr. James Warmoth, the new dad of the bunch. How are you?
2: doing good how are you
0: good have you been getting any sleep
2: actually he's he's hasn't been doing too bad uh he's got his little clock reverse though he sleeps like four or five hours at a time during the day and then all night long it's every hour on the hour so we just we just got to get that clock flipped around a little bit and we'll be all right
0: you know how you do that wake him up (laughs) <laughs> Wait, you know that everybody says "let a sleeping baby lie," so yeah, maybe your clock needs to be messed up for a while. That's fine. I'm sure that's pretty hard to do though during uh, during the day. So yeah, you're just like, oh, I just want to sleep too. Oh, and Brad has a call. Ah, oh, dot gone. Well, see you later, Brad.
1: So we just lost one.
0: I think so, yes. Another one bites at us. So it's just the three of us. Um, Brad apparently had a call and he had to run. <laughs> the dangers of doing a podcast while on shift. So, um, but first, I, so what I want to talk about tonight is in, in a couple articles that were on Gems.com that Dr. Wesley wrote. And so did Marshall Wa- Washak. Washak, Washak. Um, I think Marshall goes by the name Medic Marshall. And they talk about the, science, the street and the science of pre-hospital intubation. There was a study recently that talked about the efficiency or the increased proficiency in pre-hospital intubation. And it talks about, and it was um, published in the Pre-Hospital Emergency Care 2010, um, Volume 14, pages 103-108. through 108. And in that, it was a retrospective study that looked at paramedic students who had 576 pre-hospital intubations during a period of time. Now, during uh, during this time, and what I guess I found was interesting, is that the paramedics could only achieve a 65% first-pass success rate. Um... I don't know that that's really necessarily all glowing for the, for the saying that we should be intubating. There are much easier things and much easier devices out there that we should be doing. Uh, most medical directors, it points out in the article, consider proficiency 90% first pass and 95% total success rate. So uh, these paramedics are way behind the eight ball. Now, I guess a couple questions. One, is it the education system? Two is it a skill that maybe we shouldn't be teaching, and three, maybe was it a flaw study? I don't know one study does not necessarily make or break, but I think over time as we're seeing more and more of these type of things come out, we should be looking at we should be looking at this thing that we've been doing so long and and trying to change it so what do what do you guys think? <laughs>
1: I think that – I'll start and talk about it. I think this is just another article that adds to the um, the box of information that's out there that's discussing this concept of uh, airway management. And I really think that that is the um, – The real question: What is the best approach approach or practice that we should uh, take into consideration when it comes to critical airway management? And I think to limit it by just looking at endotracheal intubation makes us miss the point um, about what to take. You know, how to approach airway management. Do I think every Pre-hospital care providers should know airway management and be proficient in it. Yes. And I think it's important to match the right provider with the right skills to the right situation. I don't think, again, it's, um, there's one universal thing that's going to be right for every situation. And the other thing is is I think it's going to be system-to-system dependent. That's really going to drive the future of it. And I do see some systems where they will probably just use a superglottic airway, and other systems will continue to do oral endotracheal intubation. And I think it's going to really be system-specific. I don't think just because you have the title of paramedic means that your system's going to have you credentialed to do it. I think it's really going to be system-to-system system dependent. So there's my opening shot.
2: Okay, James, how about you? Well, um, I just wanted to—I just want to say one thing real quick here. You know, um, one of the things that we, one of the things that at least I was taught when I went through paramedic class was, you know, you got to get that advanced airway, you got to get that endotracheal tube, and quickly the things that I've seen is, you know, I see paramedics taking eight, nine attempts at intubation while we're still on the kitchen floor at grandma's house, and. Uh, and it, it, when when I see things like that, it makes me it makes me go. You know what? This this is one of those things that it, because because we're doing this because we're taking eight nine attempts. And I know it's not everyone, but it looks bad on us as an industry where we're sitting there for twenty minutes trying to tube a patient when we should really be concerning ourselves with uh, getting on our way. You know, somewhere and using a, a secondary airway. But I think the biggest problem is that that's been drilled into us so hard is you got to get that endotracheal tube. And, you know, that's the, that's the only acceptable airway is an endotracheal tube.
0: Well, and so I often debate this with our good friend Will Dunn. And he said, well, the gold standard is endotracheal innovation. I disagree. Uh, however, I will say that I think the gold standard is good airway management. And I remember one day in my recent, well, recent, (laughs) several, many years ago past when I showed up for a, when I, what I thought was an OR clinical and I would go in, you know, I got to get these intubations, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a little notch in my belt. I got to get the checkoffs that I got 10 intubations during paramedic school on live patients, blah, blah, blah. So I get in there and the anesthesiologist who was a great guy was like, well, we're going to teach you about airway control. I'm like, okay, cool. I want to intubate. And he's like, no, you're going to learn how to bag the patient. I'm like, oh, I know how to bag a patient. Let me tell you, over the next three hours, I learned how to bag a patient. And um, pretty much that patient's life was in my hands as I would bag the patient. And he pretty much kept that patient off the respirator and made me take care of, um, you know, of course, we got to intubate and everything else. But um, right after he knocked the patient down, he had me, he's like, okay, just wait. He goes, this person's very oxygenated. He goes, take a deep breath and just relax. And now let's, you know, get our things ready and intubate the patient. You have a minute that you can take some time and do this right. So I guess from my, my perspective, it was more important to learn about what to do and, and maybe not the procedure of getting it done. But the, the art of taking care of an airway is far more important than sticking a tube down a throat, and I think that oftentimes we, as an industry or as paramedics, want to go, Oh, I got a tube oh yeah i'm I'm happy, you know whatever and yeah, it did take us nine times that's not right that 's not what 's good patient care anyway
1: you know, and I think that um you know you you're touching on the uh the big picture of it and uh i I, I look in our system here, we perform. Critical airway management, that means at least using a bag valve mask on less than 1% of all of our patients that we see. And we run we – run. we we're a relatively small service. We're probably only running about 30 or 35,000 runs a year, but we're probably only seeing, um, let's say – 28,000 patients out of that. So imagine out of that whole pool, how small of it makes up the percentage of critical airway management. And then think on top of that, we have between our county service and the fire departments that staff with paramedic first response, and with the local community college that has its interns that ride it with us, we have about 200 providers that are all trying to uh, and that's just the ALS providers. Let's forget the BLS providers that are trying to get involved in critical airway management. So that actually leads down to an experience of about one or two opportunities per ALS provider a
2: year.
0: Wow! And that's a busy system. And I would, I think that your, I think your experience is probably the same because the busier the system, the more ALS providers you would probably, you would assume. And I I remember recently looking that it was, excuse me, a good number of ALS providers per thousand or per, um, maybe it was per 5,000, was one ALS provider per um, 5,000 people. So if you think about that for your area um, and then think about the ALS calls that you get, and we talked about this recently that 95% of what we do, 96% of what we do is not ALS. And then on top of that, then you add the critical ALS calls within that, and then the critical ALS calls that need airway management. You're, I think you're exactly right, uh, Bill. It's probably 1% of the total bad calls. And then so th- how can you be proficient when you do it three or four times a year? I, ju- I just don't think that that's good patient care. If we did it three or four times a year, uh, if we did IVs three or four times a year, would we be sitting here having the same conversation?
1: Well, probably, but the question comes is, you know, when you're – first of all, my service is full of, just like all services, mm-hmm. wonderful good people that care about what they're doing. And I think the uh, the challenge of that is, is that we've, we've set them up for failure with our educational system. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't really prepared them to uh, be able to adapt based upon um, – what they're really faced with and to be able to make those good judgments because there are people that believe the only way to manage a critical airway is with an endotracheal tube. And I think that when you look at it that way, you've missed the boat.
0: That's a good point. James, what's been your experience, at least in Texas or in your area, with this kind of attitude? I, and I know you run on a transfer service, but I think that's still as important to have the. I mean, do you think that that's pretty common in your system to not have a lot of advanced airways?
2: Well, I'll I'll talk about the transfer side here in just a second, but I did want to touch on another thing that I think is really a, a big problem. When we're talking about advanced airways and things like that is in a in a municipality that I used to work for. Very small town. Uh, we we were the nine one one provider, and we used to keep an RSI slash intubation uh, kind of like a scorecard, and it, we were it was a competition to see who would score the best. You know, the most number uh, in a uh, most number in a year, and it what we found was is that the people that were winning. Were people that were doing a lot of unnecessary? They were doing a lot of unnecessary aggressive airway management. You had a patient who didn't need to be tubed, but because there was this competition going on, that uh, they would rsi him and put a tube in them. And that's ridiculous, you know, by the way. Y- yeah, uh, and we found that this was going on in, in the particular area that I worked for a while. And so I think it's I think it's a lot. Uh, and i think I think a lot of this boils down to uh one the the direct the, the the direct response that the medic has to to the airway you know it's it's a it's a it's a personal insult to- to go for that airway and miss it and you, you want to sit and they or at least they want to sit there and try eight or nine times because they don't want to, they don't want to go back and say, "Oh yeah, I, I tried and I couldn't get it. you know for, for a lot of people, you know it's kind of a personal insult. Uh, on the other side, you've got like I said, you've got protocols that that, that push this advanced airway even when it's not even necessary. And we kind of talked about that a little bit when we did our oxygen talk, in which it was you know it, it's it's all about it's all about pushing that intervention when it should be more about uh taking care of the patient directly, so I think there's two big points there with regards to why we're having so much trouble with intubation uh well really, three, like was said before, we don't do it that often uh the other is the medic's perception of it especially if they miss it and then they they don't want to they don't want to look dumb so they go and they try and try and try and then and then you've got the service that's pushing it on them now just quickly jumping over to the transfer side uh, I don't personally do a lot of intubations but I take a lot of patients who are on like ventilators and things like that and so we we do have a lot of advanced airway calls that but we don't directly place them now we have the capabilities to do it. But most of the time, we're taking patients out of the hospital, going hospital to hospital that are tubed and are on a vent and things like that. But don't you think
0: it's important to – I mean, I think that that, is, that brings up the point that it's very important that you have good airway management skills.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, but I think the focus has, has, has been on not good airway management but getting that tube and that's that's kind of been that's kind of been the problem is that instead of instead of saying we're going to take care of our patient it's we're going to get this tube right
1: and i think that again we're 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 missing the picture by not uh, having our people graduate with having a uh, a real deep appreciation for the complexities of the, the skills that are associated with airway management. And that's why I think it's going to depend upon where you are, what your system should credential. And I think just because someone is doing, you know, uh, their paramedics are intubating, doing rapid sequence intubation uh, with sedatives and paralytics, you know, just because they're doing that doesn't mean our system should do that. Um, and then, what we have to do is is what is the most appropriate tool that we could have and you know I think with the uh, uh, the plethora of superglottic airways that are out there now that um, the opportunity to have something that is uh, highly reliable, meaning that you 're going to be able to place it uh with near a hundred percent first placement and be able to ventilate and oxygenate the patient without direct laryngoscopy, I think, makes people want to pause and say, this might be the best thing for our system and service, where again, someplace like Seattle that has a limited number of uh, paramedic providers, has a very high uh, opportunity, has an extensive training program, has very, very close medical direction, you know, unlike probably few places in the country can achieve that level of medical uh, direction, they're probably going to continue to do um, advanced airway care using it in a tracheal tube. In our service here, we're not sure what the future is. We're seriously looking at uh, supraglottic airways as the uh, approach to go or really limiting the number of people that can perform, you know um, in a tracheal intubation. And our system does not do pre-hospital uh, paralytics.
0: And have you have you had any pushback from your paramedics on that?
1: Well, something we did um, with the 2005 guidelines. When the 2005 AJ guidelines came out, they were they were pretty clear when they said endotracheal intubation, the combi tube and the LMA are equivalent airways. They're not saying. You know, uh, they're you know the same as in a tracheal tube, but for the purposes of ventilation and oxygenation, with some degree of protection from aspiration, that any one of those three could be used. And what we did is, is we we allowed our our providers to say, "Hey, use the best tool for the situation." And what we've seen over the course of uh, these last five years, but particularly since maybe the last four years, we're probably placing uh, the combi tube on about 60% of our patients in intratracheal intubation, only on 40%. And we limit the total number of attempts to two for intratracheal intubation. And the paramedics are, you know... They make the choice. They come in. If the person looks like Jabba the Hut lying there on the floor, it probably makes uh, sense to approach them with uh, the combi tube. If it looks like someone that they can be successful on the first attempt, you know, uh, and you know, because their body condition, you know, has the physical characteristics of a successful placement, they place it. So we've allowed them that that judgment, and I think that they're exercising it very well.
0: And over the past, uh, and I'm I'm assuming that you guys do a lot of CQI in a calls in a system that does thirty five thousand calls a year. Do you have, um, have you noticed any times when, pay, maybe paramedics should have recognized the difference and gone a different way, or for the most part they're being pretty successful handling the decision themselves.
1: I, I would say that they're making good judgments the only thing that we so, see it sometimes is is that when you look at the endotracheal uh intubations that are unsuccessful i don't like to say that they failed um they probably should have just manually ventilated them a little longer and realized that they didn't need to have uh in, in tube place because when they actually go to to put the laryngoscope in the um, patient's mouth they bite down on the blade or uh they can't you know that's the one of the things i see the most so i think that they didn't do a good assessment about the need for this person to have endotracheal intubation and so when they go to do it they're unsuccessful because of the patient's level of responsiveness so i think that that that's probably if i was to say anything that's still the piece that we we see but remember that's on such a smaller percentage than what we were doing at one time
2: do uh do y'all think that if we that if a system made a rule that they would not allow endotracheal intubation that you had to use a combi tube or or some other some other form of airway do you think that that would directly uh threaten the paramedic as a as a person
1: I don't, you know, that I think it's very important for us to. Uh, the term I like to use is just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And what I, I think is, I do believe paramedics, when they're getting their education, need to be exposed to the full breadth of, of critical airway management. But it's going to be a credential that's based upon the kind of system that they're working in. And I think if they understand that where they're going to work, I don't think it should be a problem. I you know, I would I would be naive to say that I know that some of our people believe that we should only be doing intratracheal intubation. And there's another group that says we should be doing what's easiest and f- Situation. So there's certainly both camps exist. And I do believe, or I've heard people say, that they they do closely um, identify with the ability to do endotracheal intubation as a a clear thing that that differentiates them from other pre hospital practitioners.
0: Well, in thinking through that, though, I think that it's also interesting, too, that you haven't gone down the road of. really slow intubation. I mean, RSI. And I think that that's, that speaks high of your ability to say, you know, we can manage an airway in a different way. And and I that to me is when when systems get really scary, we're like, oh, we need RSI. Uh, I, it, just, uh, it just scares me to say that we don't, not everybody needs it. And then it goes back to what James said earlier, it becomes a competition and uh, that's a patient isn't a roping competition. You know, we're as fast as you can ride out, rope the calf, tie it up, and you're done. It, it, patients are about uh, making sure you're making the right decisions for their care. And boy, I, that just scares me when I hear services doing that. If, if you're doing any of your service, uh, shame on you. And
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it really requires, you know. Many people don't know exactly what they're doing when it comes to those critical skills. So that would be the first thing. And when we first started, we didn't know at one time what we were doing. So when we went and started counting what we were actually doing, you know, and it required us to go through all the charts by hand when we had paper charts. Luckily, there was someone on light duty. We went through all the charts, and we pulled every chart out that had at least manual ventilation done for the patient, all the way up to endotracheal intubation. And When we first looked at this in 2000, it was actually 1999 or 98, we found that we had, uh, I think, our highest success rate, and I'm just guessing off the top of my head now, was about uh, 88% after seven attempts. Wow. and our and our first time pass rate was about 52%. And that's when we began to say to ourselves what do we need to be doing differently? So that's when we began to start looking really critical, but how many places really know what's going on? How many places really at 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 depth understand what's going on when it comes to airway management practices within their system. You know, one of the reasons we've, we've never gone down the road of uh, paralytic medications, not that it hasn't been discussed is, is 80% of our intertracheal tubes are, um, or combi tubes at this point are placed in patients with no vital signs. You know, that's the ultimate paralytic death. Um, So, that left a very, very small percentage of patients that could possibly qualify for RSI. Well, I already told you how many providers there were in the system and if we fraction it down to let's just say it was for for easy sakes, we'll just say it's a hundred innovations. It's more than that. But there that left only we did eighty for cardiac arrest, that left us twenty. For two hundred paramedics, you how do you keep proficiency and, and uh, capabilities within people to do that? And it's not, it's, not the, it's not teaching paramedics the sequence of the drugs. It's teaching the judgment of when they shouldn't do it. Because mm-hmm. the worst thing that you can do is take someone who is breathing and stop them from breathing, then not be able to ventilate or intubate them. Yep, you've created That's, a nightmare there.
2: And you know, uh, a lot of services that I've worked for have actually have actually talked about talked about getting the capabilities to do RSI, and that is the exact argument that I've made each and every time. Is why you know why are you taking away a patient's airway without 100 percent guarantee that you're going to get it back? And that has always been my stand on RSI, is that if they're breathing, I'm not going to take that away from them.
1: Well, we, we're we very fortunate. We go back. We go into the operating room um, once a week. We have a, a standing uh, invitation for the operating room. And so uh, there's three full-time Educators in my department. So, uh, based on on your shift, we go into the operating room with our paramedics, and so I'm in there. Let's say twenty times a year, supervising a paramedic doing intratracheal intubation. And when you watch the CRNAs and, and there's anesthesias anesthesiologists, but the supervision typically is two anesthesiologists to uh, three or four um, CRNAs. But the, re- the CRNAs who really understand their practice, the first thing they do is, is they uh, sedate the patient heavily with something like profofol. And then they first see that they can manually ventilate the patient. And then once they're sure they can manually ventilate it, then they push the paralytic. Because they understand if they can't ventilate... After they give that paralytic, they've created, depending on which paralytic drug they've used, uh, a person that's not going to be breathing for X period of time, and they're not able to ventilate them. So again, they understand, they have this really complex understanding of what they're doing. And I'm, I'm just not sure that we can create universally across the country that same kind of judgment, I do believe individual systems achieve that now, but it it's it's not a, a foregone conclusion that that's the case
0: well and I think you said something earlier too that was really interesting and telling for me is to is to teach people when when not to do RSI um, so I have another argument then, so our friend will Dunn has he's like oh we have a hundred percent first pass success rate. Well, they also have ten thousand um, dollar video laryngos- laryngoscopy devices. Um, is that is that the is that the only way we can do this one hundred percent of the time as field providers?
1: You know that that takes in a, and without having Will here to to give his point of view, it's it's a little unfair. But this is the EMS oh, garage. Know
0: I know it. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it some <laughs> to you. I hear but, it a lot. He's my name. <laughs>
1: But I think it's a case of, I think once you get into the realm of doing things fiber-optically or through indirect visualization, you're not doing direct laryngoscopy anymore. You're doing a whole different kind of technique. and. That requires a different skill set, a different judgment set, and one of the things, and again, I haven't seen some current literature, particularly from the out-of-hospital environment, but I can tell you that if you're dealing with a vomit, bloody-filled airway, fiber-optic visualizing airways uh, with some kind of video laryngoscope or anything like that, it changes dramatically because the you the camera gets uh obscured so easily and you'll often find and, and again it would be really great to get someone from maryland shock trauma here to talk about it they wouldn't they would most likely not approach the patient with that kind of device because of the 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 screen or the camera actually getting uh, occluded and again it would be very interesting to see his numbers you know how many paramedics how many of these devices, how often is it being done? Um, you know, and I would need to know some more to be able to dissect it down to get into some of those really uh, uh, key questions, but you talked about something else: how wise is it for us to spend ten thousand dollars on a piece of equipment that 's only only going to impact? Such a small percentage of our population, and for places that are having to make the judgment between new tires and gasoline versus that kind of device, uh, I just don't think it's practical.
2: One, one thing that I one thing that I want to say about this in particular is I always get worried when we start talking about technology in the ambulance and I I'm not one of those people that doesn't think that we should not have technology in the ambulance but this this kind of this kind of reminds me of a situation that I had at a at a company that I worked for a while back in which we had this idea when we when we bought our newest truck we said we're gonna put a backup camera in the truck that way it's easier for the crews to back up well those crews got so used to using the camera that it got to the point where they couldn't back up without the camera. And I really worry about about the whole process of 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 adding this in and it gets to the point where what happens if the batteries are dead and you don't have a spare set or the screen conks out on you, then you're pretty much at a position where you don't have a backup plan. Now there's always your your there's always your secondary airway devices, don't get me wrong there, but I'm talking about as the device as a whole, you have one specific point of failure, and the biggest thing, a problem that I have with technology is it always tends to fail us at the worst possible time.
0: Right, okay, well, they have eight or nine units, and every unit has video laryngoscopy. So as a a system, they've invested $90,000 in something they might use 20 times a year. Mm-hmm. But they have but they have 100% first-pass success. <laughs> that's what Will keeps telling me, and I'm like, okay, great. He goes, well, it's the gold standard, and I'm like, well, I can get this. No, I, don't, I King, think that's a... King Airway.
1: <laughs> that's a stretch. That's a stretch. Hey, Chris, I have to step away for a minute. You two, continue.
0: Okay, no problem. So, James, what a what about in your service? What is, um, do you know about how many times you're a beta year?
2: As a, service. If I'm, as, as a service, um, if we're lucky one or once or twice, um, you know, honestly for us, for us, like I said, we do mostly hospital to hospital. So we get a lot of experience with managing the airways once they're in place. But as far as placing them, that's usually that we usually pick a patient up that's got that in place. Now we do do our share of nine one one calls, uh, for one reason or another, but we very seldom have advanced airway devices used uh, in the field.
0: And so, do you guys still carry then intubation equipment just in case? Or oh, and then what do you at- have to do to maintain that proficiency?
2: Oh, absolutely. We you know we we carry we, we carry the ability we have the ability to do uh, endotracheal intubation. We also carry the combi tube and uh, a few other little gadgets and trinkets and things like that. Essentially, unfortunately, for the current provider that I work for, the whole training process is kind of left up to ourselves, which I'm not very happy about. But that's the way the system is set up right now.
0: Right. And Billy <laughs> so, Or no, go ahead. Yep. So, well, in in our service, I know we maybe have a chance to intubate across, ooh, I guess we have, well, if I include myself in the office staff, we probably have 10, 12 paramedics. So we probably have a chance to intubate as a service 12 times a year, once a month. Uh, there is no way we can be proficient at that. And so we... We encourage king devices and other things because uh, sometimes that's not the most important thing. Well, uh, don't get me wrong, airway is important, but the getting the intubation in is not necessarily what is always going to kill the patient. It's good airway management that will kill the pa- that will cause the patient to die. So, or lack of it. Um, so in our system, I think that we've been proactive at least that way to say, hey, we recognize there's not a lot of innovations here. We're okay with that. Be good at what you can do.
1: And anyway. We, and, you know, we focused, uh, we've spent a great deal of time in our service focusing on the, uh, the, the principle that the patient should arrive at the hospital well-ventilated and well-oxygenated, and that does not always mean an endotracheal tube.
0: That's the. I think that's the good way to look at it too. Is that those that criteria right there speaks more for for that patient than anything else. the The other thing about that too is well oxygenated, well ventilated, and maintaining their blood gases and everything else that you want them to be able to do. It's it's about the entire respiratory cycle, not just yeah. We're getting air in. That's a good thing but they're still dead. You know, those those are bad things. So I think all of those are very important to patient survivability.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's, again, I think that the, the real crux of this all is going to be is, is how well do we uh, establish the foundations of airway management uh, practices at each of the levels, the, the new, scope of practice levels, and then we're able to keep the people with the kind of practice that they should to be competent in that. And then again, I think each individual agency, such as you're using in your agency, uh, it sounds like, then establishes what's going to be best for their service area and the people that they serve. And I I think we're not done. We we have more information to collect and more things to understand. I don't think intratracheal intubation is going to be gone tomorrow by any stretch of the imagination. I think it is going to be a case of it's going, it's going to be system-by-system system dependent. And I think that there's going to be new tools coming out all the time. Um, the one study I looked at said that within the last 20 years, there's been at least one new superglottic airway created. And since 2005, I think, there's been at least two new superglottic airways created every year. So the, the, the plethora of other devices and alternatives looking for that, that silver bullet, because imagine if you could get a device that could fit all ranges of patients has 100% placement, achieves exactly what you're looking for, and there's no damages, no aspiration, and anyone could do it, I, I just I think it's going to happen eventually. It may not in, in our careers, but I think it's definitely going to happen. And I, I think direct laryngoscopy for any profession, for anesthesia, is even going to change and become a rarity because they'll they'll come out with that device that will achieve what they want that has a, a very very high safety profile
0: well and that was my original premise on the uh, as we began the show is that i think as an industry and as we progress that we're going to kill some of these old dinosaurs off and say yeah you know what we it's a tool in the bag that we rarely use uh, like the ring cutter And, uh, sorry, I had to pull that one out. And, uh, but we need it when it's needed. We know how to use it and it's important because man, the, the one time I've needed a ring cutter in 20 years, it was pretty handy and that it saved the guy's hand or finger. Uh, but, um, we also need to understand too, that, that we need to move beyond the idea of. This is exactly what our industry, you know, it's it's this or that or whatever. But and I don't know that I agree that it's system by system. I think that we need to take a stand as an industry and say, here is the standard of care. The standard of care is good airway management. How we get there is X, Y, and Z. And just having that understanding. And and then we also need then at the next day and then the next breath. I'm going to say we should probably at some point really look at how we're doing RSI in the field and maybe really pull that back and say, you know, to be very proficient in that, you have to know. And for the most part, unless you're in a rural area, um, I can't really see a lot of benefit to RSI in an urban setting. That being said, I'm sure I'll get some hate mail because of that. But I think that we really need to look at that and say, what's beneficial for the patient, getting them to the right appropriate facility or staying in playing for 30 minutes on scene, trying to get an airway when you could have been to the hospital in 10 minutes. I, there's no correlation. And really that's what the the better patient care was, get the patient to the hospital. And that's really what they need at that point.
1: I, I can't argue with you.
0: Yes. Finally, a believer. Woo. <laughs> uh,
1: we've, I think we've been practicing uh, that here, but again, I think it goes back to, the system really understanding what is their airway management practice. And uh, I think that 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 requires a true dedication to collecting that information and then being able to act on it once you know what it is and and having an involved medical community. Um, Your fall issue of uh, pre-hospital emergency care, uh, the that come just got released now will, has a number of excellent articles discussing on airway management. So uh, I think that um, it will continue to add to the um, add to the discussion about the future direction that we need to go and stuff and I think that uh while why the video laryngoscope is is very interesting I still think it's extremely expensive it's a different technique and I don't think we know how it really will play out until we get it in the hands of a lot of different providers across the uh across the spectrum you know um to see really how that works but I'm just not sure I could in good conscience advise someone to spend you know, ten or twelve thousand dollars on a device that would be used so infrequently.
0: Good point. Very good point. And yeah, when you could be spending that money in better education programs or more mm-hmm. x, y, and z. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Well, um, I don't want to kill this podcast too early, but I think that we've talked this subject up enough for uh, the three people that are on it. And we also wanted to thank Brad Buck for coming on. He had a call and he never even got to say hi, but, uh, thanks Brad for coming on. And he's actually, he's still on the Skype. I should probably turn him off. (laughs) There we go. Hang up on Brad. Um, so James, where can people find you and how can people read more information and, you know, send you hate mail if you want.
2: Oh, sorry. I was still thinking about ring cutters. Um, Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, I did, I did want to make one quick point before we sign off, if that's okay. Yeah. Oh, please. Absolutely. Um, you know, we we've been sitting here talking about, um, a, at least to a degree, is, is are these is the is the endotracheal tube dead or dying? That's what we've been talking about. But I, I think I think there's a bigger issue here, and that is that we're seeing more and more that a lot of our code drugs, a lot of our really advanced stuff that we've been that we've been pushed that's been pushed so hard on us over the years. Is starting to die away. Uh, last I heard, um, the uh, AHA said that ACLS drugs are all level B and below now, and it, I'm really, I really think that we're going to see over the next over the next few years as this progresses a real movement away from a lot of the stuff that we've been doing that we've that we've thought we're actually we're, we're doing good when we find out whether we're really not. And, and so I see, this, I see this endotracheal tube issue as sort of the beginning of that, the, the moving away from this giant bag of drugs that we have that we very seldom use. And when we do use, they often don't have any, any real bearing on things to, uh, to a more holistic approach to health care. But anyway, that's my little thing.
0: <laughs> nice. Okay. I love it. Okay, good and, and um, where can people find you or they uh, can bill did you have anything else to add to that or no nope okay good all right where can people find you james
2: they can find me at uh, yellow rubber ducky dot they can send me hate mail at that ad- they can send me hate mail from there and uh there's also links there to all my other online presences
0: all right on well thank you very much and dr toon where can people find you
1: well i i I think my. You can follow me on Twitter if you like at wftoon. I don't tweet as much as I should, but you can certainly find me there. But the other place where I hang out with a a great bunch of guys is at the EMS Educast. And you can find us and leave uh, notes and messages on our uh, Facebook page for the EMS Educast. So those are two easy places to to locate me and ask me all sorts of questions. And then that gives me my my two other colleagues to help uh, answer the questions because it, it takes lots of great minds to come up with good answers sometimes.
0: Well, and thank goodness for those guys, because they've been doing that podcast now almost as long as The Garage. I think Greg uh, hit me up about six months after I'd started The Garage and said, hey, I want to do something. Or wait, I, I'm going to do my Greg voice. Hey, I want to do something. And,
1: uh, <laughs> the He's got a great radio voice. He Are you does, kidding?
0: He does. Hey, so, Chris... uh I'm uh, Greg Fries here, and uh, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> when I first heard it, but he's the funniest guy. If you have a chance to hang out with him when we're at Expo, please do, because he is so funny. Um, so thank you guys for joining us. I'm Chris Montero, the Geeky Medic. You can find our new video podcast coming out. It is very close. In fact, if you go to our website now, you can actually see it, TV. So it's this week in EMS TV. Jamie Davis and I run down the top news stories of every week in a very short form, ten minute podcast where you get to see our faces. Sorry, and you get to hear some funny jokes. And um, the first episode's there, but it's kind of rough. So just look at it for what it is, and and uh, but we'll, more to come. We've actually shot four episodes, and he's he's frantically. Uh, emailing me every day. When's it going to be ready? When's it going to be ready? So he's waiting for me and I, I assure you it'll be ready probably by this weekend. There'll be four brand new episodes of This Week in EMS at that website. Go to EMS Educast. Listen to Greg Freeze, um, Rob and uh, I can't think of his last Theria. name. Right? Oh, Terrio from Ontario. Gosh, I always do that. Uh, Rob, Terrio and Bill Toon and, and all the great guests they have over there. Go to fr- uh, First Few Moments. Listen to Kyle David Bates and his podcast are doing a lot of good work and scene safety and uh, patient safety and just everything over there and we really love that. And then also join us for our occasional EMS leadership podcast that we do. And as a final token of our appreciation, I'm going to bring back apparently Brad is done with his call. I'm going to bring him on for one last word <laughs> and just let him say goodbye and good night. So, uh, uh, Brad we're, we're, we're doing our closing but uh, say hi and goodbye hi. all at the same time hi goodbye <laughs> uh, where can people find you besides running Uh calls?
1: you can find me on twitter at CFmedic33 uh, Brad Buck on facebook and uh, I'm a few steps closer to my blog now but uh, it's still a work in progress
0: very cool thank you very much And thank you guys for joining us this week. And join us next time when we talk more about issues that concern you in EMS. Have a great night.